friend. Welcome to Plays Well with Others, a podcast for creative community to discuss everything from the sensitive to the silly, but most importantly, to explore play. Come play with us. I'm your podcast host and wiggly dancer, lover of ducks and hats, Alex B. Arnapol. Let's dive in, shall we? friends. It's me. I'm back. It's been a second. Okay, so I won't go too deep into it, but my life has taken a lot of shifts over the past few months, and needless to say, the podcast needed to take a little break. It needed to take a nap, a hibernation. I'm actually experiencing a deep level of hibernation and pruning in my life of looking at what needs to be cut back. And honestly, I needed to cut this podcast back for a little bit because, well, I was ready to record new episodes and I found out I was pregnant. And yes, I'm still pregnant right now. We have a little humanoid joining us at the end of the year, but it really threw everything in my life for a spiral. It was such a reminder that the things that we experience aren't linear. I was on this track of recording podcasts that were all about this cyclical growth that occurs within creativity, and then I had to experience it myself. So what a beautiful call home. I'll speak more on it in future episodes to come, but I'm really excited about this transition and everything that it's allowing me to think about and do and consider. But for now, because like I said, that is an episode for another day. I promise to talk to you all about being pregnant, taking time off, what this means for my body as a queer human being. Today, though, I'd like to bring us back to a conversation I recorded during the winter. And honestly, it has been one of my favorite episodes to record. I am so honored that we were joined by the amazing Meg Lewis, who, if you're not already familiar with her, get yourself familiar with Meg's work. Meg's tagline is that she is making the world a happier place through design. And honestly, I don't think it's just design that she's utilizing to make the world a happier, more joyful place. Even in our conversation, she really brings this sense of experimentation and permission to her work. And we are so honored to have Meg teaching with Rec Center next Saturday, August 20th at noon Pacific time for an expansive and experimental class called How to Have Fun by Yourself. And having fun by yourself, being inspired by who you are, And utilizing your niche talents is really at the center of the conversation with Meg. Before we jump in, I do want to offer you, dear listener, a discount code for being a member of our community. So if you want to join next week's class, use code FUNHOUSE, capital F, capital H, one word, FUNHOUSE, to join for 15% off. Now, without further ado... I bring you graphic designer extraordinaire, teacher, facilitator, comedian, Meg Lewis. Hi, Meg. How are you? I'm so good. So good to be here. Yes, absolutely. How are you feeling today? And most importantly, have you had a tasty snack today? Wow. Yeah. Oh, what a fun question. Um, I'm feeling (laughs) so good because I had a tasty snack. I mean, I'm just going to hold it up so you can see, and then I'll describe. So I, it's, uh, what is called, um, dipping rings. Amazing. They are, uh, Sambuca flavored cookies, uh, kind of like a biscuit. They're made in Italy and I have heard of Sambuca before, but I didn't really make the connection until I saw this box that Sambuca is star anise. They're the same thing. See, I'm Italian and I feel like I should know this. Like, I feel like that should be in my blood. And the fact that that is new to me is shocking, but also, you know, yeah, that is amazing. Also, it 
So for all the, the listeners that can't see, this box is also massive. It's like larger than Meg's head. It is, yeah, that is, is like a sizable box of cookies. And they also have a picture of you. So they're called Dippin' Rings. They're definitely, it's kind of like a biscuit yes. texture, um, like a European biscuit texture. Yes, yes. And uh, kind of like a shortbread cookie that's, you know, Sambuca flavored. And there's an image showing you dipping it in the coffee, which makes sense to me. That's what I did today. But there's Perfect. also an illustration of the person dipping it into wine. That is even better. And I love the choose your own adventure quality of these exactly. biscuits that like morning or evening, that these are really the appropriate snack for any time of day. I'm very into that. I have not had a, like, a tasty snack. I've had some oatmeal today, but I feel like that is the ideal snack for right now. So thank you. Thank you for sharing your dippables with us. That is, I feel like this podcast dippables feels right in line with everything we do. So that is perfect. I just, I love an interactive food or beverage. So yes, I love that you can just dip it something into any beverage of your choice. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think I make most of my snacks and food interactive anyway, even if they're not supposed to be interactive. I didn't really get over the plays with your food stage. Uh, for the listeners that can't see the amazing things behind Meg, Meg also has a sausage link hanging from her studio. Tell me about this sausage <laughs> on the subject of food. Tell me about the sausage links in the background. Yeah. Um, so those are one of, of many fake foods that I have around my studio space. Yes. I'm, I love fake food. When I was a kid, I was just truly enamored with fake food. I think it was much <laughs> more common during the, you know, nineties, especially because I, I remember seeing fake food all the time. Yes. Anytime I would go to like a cafeteria style restaurant and where I grew up, I grew up in a suburb of Kansas city. I don't know if this was a regional thing, but I remember dessert trays being very common. Yes. Like you'd go to a, a night quote unquote, nice restaurant, which is very subjective, but <laughs> my childhood, nice restaurants, would have, they'd say, would you like dessert? And you'd say, oh, I, I'm interested in hearing about your options. They'd say, let me go get the dessert tray. They'd bring out a tray of fake desserts that they had. That was the selection. I feel like they were fake because they always looked perfect and they were just sitting out on this tray all day long. And they'd point to the, all of the options and say, here are your choices. And I was just obsessed with the fake desserts and also furniture stores that would have the glass of wine spilled on the sofa or the mattress. I just loved it all. So now that I'm in the space that I can design myself and fill it with whatever I want, I, it's got <laughs> a lot of fake food in here. So really your studio is like a Midwestern restaurant yeah. come to life from the eighties and nineties. Yes. Yeah. I have very similar memories of the fake food and the tray, the dessert tray. I haven't thought about the dessert tray in such a long time. There was this restaurant in Wisconsin called Taste of Wisconsin that we used to go to that had the exact dessert tray. The other option that they had was a rotating dessert selection that came in this like, it was almost like a cylinder with, and it was lit and the desserts oh. would spin and you could pick it out. You'd be like, I want that pie as it like spun towards you. That's so magical. Yes. We, we need to bring that back so yes. badly. Yes. I am very pro food, like dogs that are food motivated. I am food motivated. <laughs> so, well, with, on the subject of food and delights and silliness, as you know, I am very into play games, everything like that. Would it be okay before we got started into questions to play a little game together? <laughs> oh, yes, it would be okay. I figured as much, but you know, consent. I'm always all about consent. <laughs> yeah. Are you familiar with the improv game where you build a story one word at a time? No, let's, let's yes. hear the, okay. let's hear I'll the give rules. You the rules. <laughs> I'll give you the rules. Give you the rules. So basically the way it works is we will just alternate back and forth sharing one word to build a story. So okay. it would go, for instance, like once upon a time. And then we just go Got from it. there. Does that make sense? It sure does. Perfect. We're just going to do a real quick story just to, to, get, our, to get our juices flowing, essentially. Great. 
So I'll go ahead and start. Once I was a turkey baster. And guess what happened next? Well, let me tell you. I opened the door and big turkey feathers came right into my <laughs> hole. <laughs> You know what? I think that's the perfect way. I turkey cannot wait to hole. see. Yeah. So once I was a turkey baster and I opened the door to find turkey feathers that came right in my turkey hole. Perfect. That is exactly that. That's probably going to be the title of the podcast there. So <laughs> I am so thank you for doing that with me. I like to do just a little bit of play so we can like get our brain thinking in a different way so often. And I know this isn't the case for you because you're already so used to playing. That's your whole life is silliness and really looking at the intersections of play, creativity, humor. But for a lot of people, that's really hard. And it's hard to kind of switch gears in our brain. So what I would love to do is just get more of an idea of your journey, who you are, where you've been, and really starting with childhood. Who were you as a kid? Tell me about baby Meg. I want to know all about baby Meg. (laughs) Oh gosh. Well, I will say that I was exactly who I am now. I try my hardest to hold on to her as much as possible and to remain true to that person. And when I was baby Meg, when I was a kid, I was disgusted by adults. I was not, I did not want to become an adult. I thought they were very boring. Overhearing adults' problems, I was not interested in ever having those problems. And I remember constantly observing adults and thinking, gosh, I hope I don't become that someday. <laughs> Just the gripes, like the complaints, the, uh, I remember my, no offense to my dad, but I do remember him coming home one day from the bank and he was, had this exciting story. He was so worked up and so excited to tell the story about how he was in line at the bank And someone was standing too close to him. And like, you know, when somebody stands so close to you that they're touching you, you're like, what the heck? Somebody was doing that to him. He was very, the person behind my dad was very impatient. My dad was really annoyed. And my dad came home from the bank. It was just so excited to talk about that. And I remember thinking, is this what's so exciting for adults? Like that sounds so boring to me. So I, I learned from observing adults, what I did not want to become. And when I was younger, I just thought I, I, I can't become that. I, I want to have as much fun as possible when I'm adult. I want to hang on to how I feel for as long as humanly possible. Cause I realized that clearly the world must be extremely painful for adults. And I do also remember asking my mom constantly, uh, just like the basics of how the world works and not truly, I could not compute why everyone was so mad at each other all the time, why everybody was always fighting, why like truly no one in this world could just get along with each other. And I combined with just experiencing things for the first time, like kids telling me they wanted to hang out with me, but clearly they weren't acting like they did, or they really didn't. I was just so confused why humans were acting the way that they were. I just could not cope with that information. I couldn't, I didn't get it. I didn't understand why humans were behaving the way humans were behaving. And I think those are common questions that children have. But as we go through our adult lives and and growing up and becoming adults and becoming humans, we just sort of accept that's the way the world works. And I just never wanted to accept that. (laughs) And so here I am today trying my hardest to still not accept that. And some days I find myself acting like an adult and being infatuated with the problems that adults have and letting those problems consume me. I try so hard to not do that, to constantly remind myself of, wait a minute, you don't have to accept that as the way that life is. You can have fun. You can spend your days enjoying what you do, not spending a single second on something that you don't truly have the most fun doing. And so that's, that's what I'm trying to do now. Yes. Oh my goodness. That resonates so deeply with me. And I, growing up, I had a really similar experience where I would see adults adulting and all I could think was, oh shit, this isn't what I want. How, how do I avoid this? And not in a Peter Pan forever, a child way, but more so how do I not let this feeling go and almost being hyper aware of my own 
childlikeness as a child, that that like almost meta awareness that comes with being a hyper aware child, being creative, and also being someone that deeply cares about play and silliness and lightness and softness. So I so deeply resonate with all of that. Was there a moment when you were a child where you started to find these coping mechanisms, so to speak, to keep that that playfulness, that lightness. Was there a moment when you started to discover your own personal coping mechanisms? Yeah. Well, I think something unique about me as a child that I try so hard to hold on to was my ability to be alone with my own thoughts as much as possible. I loved being by myself so much. There was no better place to me than my imagination. I liked what the world I was building, building in my head so much more than the real world. And I wanted to spend all of my time there, all of my time with myself. And the more time I spent with other people, I I just found that other people kind of got in my way in a way that I was loving myself so much in my headspace so much that I felt like if other people weren't around, I could just do and become and be anybody I wanted to be. But as soon as people were around, they would kind of just get in my way a little bit. So I, I've tried so hard to hold on to that. And when I was a kid, I would spend so much time just thinking, being alone with myself, not doing anything. I really was not very into toys when I was a kid. I loved just sitting alone and thinking <laughs> and building worlds inside of my head and living basically there instead. And so I think that was my coping mechanism when I couldn't, you know, cope with the real world and was dissatisfied with what was really happening in the real world. I would just escape inside of my own imagination. And that's exactly what I still try so hard to do today. Absolutely. And you know, it's so interesting hearing that too, because I also see you as such a community focused individual. Yeah. That your work is always engaging with people that you're people centric. And there's that relationship that give and take with your work that only exists when it's with an audience or with a participant. So how did you take that, create your own universe mindset, imagination, and then bring that to people? Where did the connecting element start to happen? Well, I truly believe that every, every person is so beautiful and interesting and amazing. And this world, as we've talked about, really beats people down. This world is painful. And we're also beautiful and interesting and amazing and incredible and complex. And this world just takes us and tries us to mold us into the same version of a human. And I think that's so sad. That's where all of this comes into play is I, since I was a kid, I realized that that's not okay for, for this world to turn everybody into the same person that the world wants that person that, you know, we all have different labels that the world prescribes us. And each of our labels also gets prescribed with a list of attributes. And the world just wants us to fit into that mold of whatever a person that looks like us is. And that's so strange to me and was strange to me when I was a kid and me being able to uncover the beauty and the complexity in each individual person is so exciting for me. I feel so called to action to help people to get past this mold of what the world wants them to be and to figure out who they are as individuals and to start thinking freely independently for themselves. So it's a very solitary activity, but I feel like if more of us would get together and do these exercises together as individuals, then that would really have such a huge impact on the world and also make other people feel safe and excited to do this for themselves too. And to step outside of that mold, even though that's extremely scary because most of us aren't safe enough to do that, but the more that we can do it as individuals, the more people can feel safe to do it. Yes, 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 yes. Hearing you talk about this inner work and then bringing that to the outside makes me think of a survey I once participated in where we were looking at what makes a creative creative. What is the thing that really sparks that? And almost everyone answered either I need my solo time so I can bring it to the public or I need to be in the public so it'll fuel me to do that solo work. And it's so interesting how almost every creative says, hey, I've got this world happening inside my brain and I either need to share it with someone else or I need to take that outside world so I can process it by myself. And this give and take back and forth that starts to happen. And it's so funny because you, you're you also 
a comedian, correct? Yes. Yes. And when I think about performance, comedy, there's also this give and take that starts to happen. So tell me a little bit about the connection between the work that you do in comedy and then also the work you do with design. Where is the intersection? Where do those start to interact? Those start to interact firstly in my brain. I've always been like this. Humor has been very important to me when I was a kid. I wanted to be a comedy actor. And then I just ended up having this like wonderful creative skill set. And so now what I'm doing is I'm trying to smush all of those things together into one career, into one life for myself so that I can have the most fun as possible. And it has been absolutely remarkable just for my own self-confidence because I'm able to utilize everything that I have to offer and smush it together, which I think also allows me to do things, make things, create things for the world that other people cannot because not everybody has this combination of skills that I have. So I try to utilize as much as I can from my skill set as possible. So that way I'm able to do things for the world that others can't. And also in relation, um, by doing that, I'm trying to encourage other people to do the same, whatever that is for them of taking the things about themselves that they're good at or interested in and smushing those things together and finding a way that they can also create and make or do things for the world that other people couldn't. Absolutely. Mm. I love that idea of squishing everything together. We often describe the community at Rec Center as squishies, people that (laughs) have squished things together or they're emotionally very squishy, but almost as if I'm thinking about your brain like a toolbox right now. If we could unpack all of the tools that have come together to make Meg Lewis, Meg Lewis, What are those tools? What are the things you've squished together? If we just like gently took them out of the box, what do we get to see? Yeah, it's definitely uh, so equal parts humor with design. Always a lot of this rejecting what the world is telling us, unlearning so much about what the world has taught us as children and as adults. So it's a lot of all of that. And there's just this call to action to teach and help other people. I don't even remember anymore, but on the Enneagram thing, I, as much as I try, I'm always the the helper. I that's, uh, like there's what uh, people always think I'm like the enthusiast one, but my desire to help people always just takes over and I can't stop. It's often, you know, because I like to spend so much time alone. That's hard for me because I end up spending so much time just helping people because I can't stop myself. So that's sprinkled in there too. And that's just a huge part of my personality and always has been. So those are, those are my tools. I love that. (laughs) I'm just imagining each one, like being gently picked up out of your brain and placed before us on on the dessert presentation table. (laughs) That's what I want to see. I want to see the illustration of like your brain as the dessert presentation table of all of the parts that are coming out. (laughs) So speaking of these tools and the creativity and everything coming together, we got a little bit of a snippet of Baby Meg. Tell me a little bit about your journey creatively. When did you figure out you were a creative? What were the steps you took to get there? When did you realize, oh, I think this is the thing. This is the thing I want to do with my life. And were were there hurdles along the way? Yes, I have so many hurdles. Uh, When I was growing up, I didn't really have any influences or examples for career types for someone that looked like me, I suppose. Um, I really thought my option was like nurse, teacher, uh, full-time mom. Um, those Those were the options that were presented to me based on the examples I had in my life. And I had one sibling that ended up going to a fashion school to learn how to do visual merchandising, which was a huge eye opener to me. I didn't even realize that that was a possibility for me. I didn't really have the belief that I could do anything literally (laughs) in my own mind. I, I could build these worlds, but I didn't think that I, it would be an option for me. I just thought of the options being a teacher would be the choice because I just didn't see many options laid in front of me. So as soon as I had my sister go to school for fashion, I thought, oh, a new option. (laughs) And so that's what I did. I was like, there's a new option where I can be really creative. This is perfect. So I went to school for fashion. I went to school in LA and I did a, it was essentially a design fashion degree that is not fashion design. So designing everything else in the fashion industry. So retail spaces, uh, styling shoots, that kind of thing. And 
I did that program. I realized that the fashion industry just wasn't for me because at the time, and just based on the program I was in, it was very competitive. I am not competitive at all. But I did, however, learn a lot about design, about creativity and what I could offer. And I learned how to use design software and all of that. And so after I graduated from that school, I didn't know what to do with myself, um, but I knew that I only wanted to work for myself. So I had this skill set and I knew that I wanted to work for myself. So the only thing I knew how to do in order to fight for myself and keep everything within my control was to open an online vintage store because I realized, hey, all I have to do is buy clothing take photos of them and hopefully sell them for more than I bought them for. And I have the design knowledge to design the brand for myself and all of that. So I started to do that and it went okay. I was able to, you know, I was back living with my mom at the time and I was able to like sustain my lifestyle living at my mom's (laughs) and that was going okay. But I really started to absolutely hate the smell of vintage clothes. (laughs) I was like, not passionate enough about the clothes to withstand and endure the smell. (laughs) So I took the component of what I liked the most about it, which was designing the brand, designing the website assets and all of that. And I thought, I really want to do this part. I want to design, I want to do the graphic design. So at the time, I just thought in order to become something professionally, you had to go to school and get a degree. Still thought that that was true, which it's As we know, that's not true for most creative careers anymore. So I went back to school and learned how to become a designer. I made up my own major. I went to school that allowed me to do that. I took like uh, programming classes, graphic design classes, all kinds of stuff, and just learned as much as I could. And then I kind of just pieced out of there whenever I felt like I had enough information in order to be able to freelance. And I just fought really hard for myself for a long time, taking on as many clients as I could possibly find. And I would do anything for anybody for way too little of money. I would design and code full websites for like four or $500. I would just design logos for like a lot of them for free or, you know, $50 here and there. And, and at the time I just made as many friends with as many people that were doing design as I could. And eventually that's where I got all the best work was from design friends referring me stuff that they couldn't take on. Then I slowly started to be making more money and and charging more over the years. And so as I went through that process, I learned a lot about what I enjoyed doing the most and didn't enjoy doing and started to just learn through trial and error of what I liked. I got fired a lot from people because I wasn't able to create the kind of work that they wanted me to. And now I understand, of course, The uh, bespoke letterpress company that wanted a hand lettered logo didn't like the work I was making. I'm a terrible hand lettering artist. I don't just, I don't belong designing that kind of stuff for somebody. I was bad at that. And so I learned what I was really good at, like what type of design I had the most fun doing and was the most talented at and started to do more work that was more fun for me. And so it was, it was a lot of years of that sort of like calculation of, a lot of misery, some money, some pockets of joy <laughs> to try and figure out what's bringing me the most joy and how I could like shrink that misery amount as small as possible and increase the joy and also like keep the money <laughs> pocket as uh, large as it could be in order to, for me to survive. And now that's where I'm at. My journey has gotten me to not only survive, but now I'm sort of in this thriving period where my joy is at max level. My misery is about as small as it could possibly be. Of course, I still feel some misery. It's impossible. This world is painful. Um, But also the money is like at a point where I'm surviving and able to have the lifestyle that I want to have. And the most wonderful part about it is that I'm at this place right now where I feel like I can truly say that I have everything that I want and I don't want anything else. I have exactly enough money for myself to sustain this lifestyle that I truly never thought in my life that I could ever possibly have when I was a kid and just feel the most joy and the least amount of misery. That's all I can ask for. Wow. You pretty much just described exactly the path that when I work with creative (laughs) clients or group classes about how to actually go from the very beginning to the very end, every step along the way, which is incredible. 
from realizing there are options beyond what you were presented with. That is a huge one for artists when they think that they can only be a teacher or they can only be a gallery artist or you have to be a graphic designer because that's the only way to make money. And then they don't recognize the, the spectrum of options that exist in between. Going from that to realizing what you don't want to do to what you do want to do and ultimately increasing the joy. I feel like increasing the joy, minimizing the sorrow, the grief, the pain is such a huge part of that journey and figuring out what is it that actually brings you joy? What is the thing that you want to focus on that brings you joy day in and day out? So it's just amazing and an absolute honor really to hear about that journey for you. Yeah. And I do think that we, it's, it's a complicated conversation because a lot of what we're talking about is sort of tiptoeing around the like, do what you love sort of conversation, which I think is dangerous because of that survival piece, right? A lot of people have to go through a period of just trying to survive, doing what you have to do. And unfortunately in this capitalistic structure, uh, money and misery are often tied together. Like in order to survive, to, to get through that survival period, you have to go through a fair amount of misery, which is absolutely terrible. And in order to get to hopefully thrive and hopefully in order to get to that thrival period, we can keep that misery at bay as much as possible. Um, and then we can truly get to a point where we're thriving. We are doing what we love. We're having the most joy in our lives as possible, least amount of misery and making the amount of money that allow, at least allows us to survive with a little bit of padding. And that's what I, where I'm hoping that every human could get. I, I think we often just tie the, the money to the most important piece, which always tends to come with a fair amount of misery. But the money shouldn't be the most important piece. The joy should be the most important piece. But we do need the money in order to be able to survive. So if, if somebody's at that survival point in their life, the, the point is, is it truly, it has to be unfortunately focusing on money in order to sustain the lifestyle that you need for your yourself, your dependents to be able to function in this world. And I, I think that we, we truly can't shame people for just trying to survive within this structure that none of us asked to be a part of in the first place. 100%. And also there is no shame in trying something, in experimenting, in failing. The One of the key things that I feel like you really bring up here too is that level of trial and error that exists within that. And there's so much shame, especially because everything we're presented with these days because of the structures that none of us asked to be put into, that everything we see is a finished product, is a success, is a big win, is a hashtag girl boss, some (laughs) sort of bullshit. And we think that's what we have to be. We think that there isn't any experimentation or trial and error that happens in between those states. So really thinking about the idea that it's okay to just try to survive, to just try and be, or even if your creativity isn't the thing that is generating 100% of your income too, all of the myriad of ways that we can exist in this world and survive and move towards thriving. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I feel like no matter what on any conversation I have, I always drive it into this anti-capitalist territory. Mm -hmm. I almost, I like, I can't let go of that because it's so intrinsically tied to that creative journey that so many of us have and what we're always bumping up against. So I, I'm just really delighted and honored, like I said, to hear about your journey and the struggles that you faced, but how you handled them and how you navigated them. Really wonderful and inspiring, but also just creating a sense of normalcy. There is not a lot of normalcy created around the trial and error, the experimentation phase. Something that really intrigues me about your work and especially witnessing your work over the years, I've been a fan of your work for quite some time, is also watching you go through trial and error. You experiment as an audience member, getting to witness you merging brands, combining things. I remember having multiple Instagram accounts of yours that I used to follow. And then <laughs> yeah. the day when they all became one, it's, it's been a real honor to witness that journey as well. I would love to hear a little bit about your experiments, about that 
trial and error phase about the merging, if you want to share that. Oh yeah. I truly do. I, I think because I'm not a, what I would say, goal oriented person, <laughs> I, I don't like planning my future at all. I really think of my career and my life as this sort of amorphous blob that is going in whatever direction it feels like going, that's making me the happiest at any given time and allowing me to have the most fun. And so if I plan for my future in any way, say, oh, I want to reach this milestone on this date, of course, I'll work very hard and I'll probably reach it. If I don't, I'll probably think of myself as a failure for some reason. Um, So I just don't mess with any of that. (laughs) I say, here's something that would be really fun for me to do. How can I do it 100% within my own control so that I don't have to rely on anybody else allowing me to have that opportunity or to make that thing? And then I just follow the fun. I figure out how I can possibly do this all on my own, um, which usually it requires me spending truly no money, but my own time on things. So that's really where most of the trail and error comes from. If I say, Hey, I want to, I want to design rugs really badly, but I've never done this before. Nobody, of course, no brand is just going to allow me to design some rugs. I don't even have any examples of what that could look like. So I think, okay, how could I possibly design rugs in my own control, all on my own? Um, Society Six is a thing that's not going to make me probably more than fifty dollars if I design some rugs on Society Six, which is true. Um, but they allow, like, they have rugs that you can put designs on. So I'll do that. I'll and I need a new rug for my bedroom, so I'll make myself a rug for my bedroom, take pictures of it, show the world that I can design textiles. And then tell the world that I also really want to design rugs and see if something comes of it. And this is a real example. This is something I did earlier this year. And because I had this example that I did all on my own, and then I told the world that this is something I want to do, I would have a lot of fun doing. I had an example, told the world, the world saw it. People, you know, were talking with their friends. And what happened was somebody that follows me DM'd me and said, Hey, I have a friend. They don't know who you are, but I have a friend who has a rug company, I sent them your information. Why don't you just reach out to them and see if they'd be open to it? And I did, and they were. And then I was able to get this project. So a lot of that trial and error happens in that way. And sometimes I find that I don't enjoy the thing that I thought that I would, that I would have fun doing, or it just becomes unfun for me after a while. Like for example, my podcast that I had that was a comedy mindfulness and meditation podcast, I was so having the most fun making those episodes. It was the most fun thing I had ever done at the time. I was so charged up about it, very excited. And one day I was like, I don't know, it's not as fun for me anymore. So I just stopped doing it. And I think a lot of people talk to me about things like that. And they say like, well, what happened? Like, was it not making enough money? You know? And I was just like, no, I just, I got excited about something else that I was having more fun doing. And I think that that constant pressure we put on ourselves as meeting milestones and putting a prescriptive future for ourselves in front of us and saying, if, if I don't get exactly to where I want this to go, then I'm going to fail. It's going to be a huge bummer. I just don't, I try not to think like that because truly if I envision a future for myself, it'll probably happen or it won't. And I'll be disappointed. But if I don't envision a future for myself at all, I usually end up so much further away from what I could have ever envisioned, often some sort of far off distance into some area that I could have never imagined for myself. And that is so much more fun for me than meeting a goal. (laughs) So that's all why the trial and error is so fun for me because it's just me having a good time, seeing what I enjoy and hoping my main goal is to make the world a happier place for other people and to bring that joy to other people as well. So as long as I'm doing all those things, I guess those are my goals. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I love that. It's hilarious because for those that can't see me right now, I've had to mute myself because I keep snapping saying, yes, aha. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh yeah, no, I totally get that. To minimize the amount of my voice that you're hearing, I'm on mute, but the level that I am connecting with everything you're saying is so deep. One of the things that I was so excited about that you mentioned is this idea of the first version of it, of the rough draft, of trying it, of letting it be an experiment, of letting it be play 
of letting your business be play before you go into the deep water, into the deep section of the pool, so to speak. So doing the society six and then putting it out there and seeing who bites, who wants to be a part of your community and then figuring out what works and what doesn't work and not committing to something just because you said you were going to do it and allowing yourself to say no, say no to yourself. That is so hard for so many individuals, for so many creatives who think that, oh, well, I've already started it and I said, I'm going to do it. And if I said, I'm going to do it, I have to follow through. No, you don't. Who said you have to? Exactly. Who is, who is keeping you to that? There's no one with like a bullwhip in the background, snapping it at your back saying, you better make that podcast. Absolutely (laughs) not. But I will say I did love your podcast, especially (laughs) the episode about the old dogs that really delighted me. Good for, for those that don't know the podcast, could you give us a little snippet about what this podcast was just to get an idea of what kind of work you're making? What are you switching gears from? What were you doing? What are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> and maybe what new projects are coming down the yes. line? Yeah. So that podcast was really uh, a way for me to mix a couple of things that I really love, which is comedy and meditation. <laughs> and, you know, I just kind of had an epiphany one day where somebody asked me if I would lead a group meditation. And I was like, no way. I don't even know what I would say. It would go into some weird places. I would probably be laughing a lot. And then I thought, wait a minute, why? can't that be what meditation is? If, if the goal is to make you kind of feel at one with yourself or separated from your thoughts and to feel better afterwards, then I can still make it funny and that will work. And so that's what this podcast is, is a mindfulness podcast that gives you some time to just relax and sit there and do nothing, which is what the podcast is called and listen to some funny, uh, (laughs) funny guided meditations. Um, yeah, so that's what that podcast was. And really in the subject of chasing fun my whole of the last, I would say four or five years, I have been designing. This is going to go in a direction where you think I'm creating a restaurant. I am not. Uh, (laughs) Don't want you to get pre get excited. There's no restaurant, but for the last few years, I've been designing the concept for a restaurant um, that I just wanted to get out of my brain. I've had this fictional restaurant in my head for years and years and years. And I just wanted to start building the concept out so that I could just get it out of my brain. I do not want to own a restaurant. I just wanted to get it out into the world somehow. So that was a thing. Um, and then separately, I really have been wanting to host my own podcast that is unrelated to mindfulness. And it just occurred to me that and within the last year that all of this can kind of come together Um, The concept that I have, I've uh, truly, whenever I think of the thing in this world that I want to be doing more than anything else is have a (laughs) sort of like Mr. Rogers meets Pee Wee's Playhouse-esque show that's set in the bathroom and I'm sitting on the toilet the whole time. I am, you know, doing these monologues, interviewing people that are sitting in the stall next to me, that kind of thing. Characters come in and out. I interact with the toilet, with the toilet brush, the toilet paper roll, all of that. And it occurred to me a couple of months ago that I can, again, squish all this together. My uh, restaurant concept was a uh, retro style diner that's attached to a rock and roll fun house. (laughs) So what I'm working on now is truly the most fun thing I've, I think I could ever possibly do at this point in my life. And I'm working backwards. So I have this visual environment for a show that I truly want to exist figured out. It is set and recorded inside the bathroom of this rock and roll fun house. That's on top of a retro diner and guests come and go from the bathroom. And, and that's where the show is set. And, uh, if you could just like have a moment to visualize this with me, if you could see, you know, how car- like carnival fun houses are very flat on the front, but you can kind of see inside of them, like the a little bit of the mirror maze. You can see those like punching bag things that you knock into and bonk against. You can see the slide coming out. So I imagine visually this fun house, if you cut the whole front of it off. So it's almost like a dollhouse view where you can see all the levels. 
You can see inside of the retro dining car that's on the first floor. It's also drive-in. So you can see like the retro cars outside, of course. You can pull up an order there. Uh, and then on top of the retro diner is three stories of a fun house that you can see inside and see all the activities in the rooms. You can see inside the bathroom, which is where I am. And then at the very top is like a little watchtower that winds and, and swirls above the fun house. And that's where I live. <laughs> so you can imagine this environment and so I'm working backwards from that. I have that, I have the visuals figured out, but I can't do that right now. I don't, I don't have an investor. I don't have Warner Brothers calling me, um, but I do have a microphone. <laughs> so I'm working backwards and I am creating, and luckily I'm hiring an editor who's doing sound design for me to try and create that visual environment with audio only. So what I'm creating is a podcast now that is uh, the Meg Lewis Funhouse, where I will have characters and guests, and it's going to be a kind of a variety show. It's going to be equal parts nonsensical and useful, but it's going to be made for truly anyone, regardless of career or or even age. I want it to be for adults as well as for kids. So uh, that's what I'm working on now, and I'm I'm just having the best time. I can't even I can't imagine a world in which it will make me any money. So unfortunately I can't spend all of my time on it. I'd like to, uh, but I'm having so much fun and that's really all that matters to me at this point. Increasing the joy, increasing the fun. Yeah. My brain is exploding with excitement about this whole concept. You couldn't have more perfectly named something that would be appealing to me personally, Alex, <laughs> the combination of Pee Wee, Mr. Rogers, retro diner, all of that. And really what I think is happening here is we're bringing it back full circle to plastic food that we are, this feels like the environment where we would say, Hmm, what do you have for dessert? Well, (laughs) we have the key lime pie. Let me show you and bringing you out the, the dessert tray. So really, I think what we're getting at here is there needs to be a dessert tray involved in all of this. You are absolutely correct. I, and I want to see this rotating dessert experience that you were talking about, because that seems perfect. That is very dinery. I feel like that is quintessential old school diner of the rotating desserts. Yes. You need this in the diner. Well, I am so excited about this entire project. You have to keep us updated with details because like you said, it is that perfect balance of it's the squish. It is the squishiness of bringing together the things that bring you joy. That's what we need more of in the world, regardless if it is money generating or not. And, you know, if Warner Brothers is listening, we would love (laughs) to get some sponsorship here, throw some money at Meg so we can have the physical space and we could all experience the Meg Lewis fun house. Yes. How many, how many brothers do you think there are in the Warner family? (laughs) Are they all listening? (laughs) We we really need the entire Warner family on board for this. Mm -hmm. We'll make sure to get some like really true sponsorship from them. At least one brother, at least a singular (laughs) brother on this. Yeah. The like black sheep of the Warner family. Yes, exactly. The one who's like, I'm just going to do this to spite them sort of a thing. (laughs) I don't know why he has like an old time carnival accent. (laughs) I'm going to do this to spite everybody in the family sort of a thing. (laughs) Well, Meg, it was so much fun chatting with you today, hearing about your creative journey, hearing about your process, your childhood. And to leave us today, I would love if you'd like to share Maybe a snippet of going back to that baby Meg, going back to child Meg, of if you could give them a gift, whether it's a physical gift or a gift of advice or even just like a special hug, what would you give baby Meg right now? Oh, gosh, I think that I would give baby Meg. I, this isn't like the most uh, insightful answer, but because I didn't like toys, my favorite activity when I was a kid, besides being by myself, this actually involved being alone. Nobody would play this activity with me. I would take my sister's Barbie house. It was kind of like a dollhouse, but for her Barbies, I would throw out all the Barbies, uh, of course, and I would take it outside with also a Ziploc bag, like if you can imagine a sandwich bag sized Ziploc bag. So I would give myself a Ziploc bag. This is what I would give me. And I would take that outside on a rainy day specifically, and I would open the bag up and wait for it to fill with rain. (laughs) And I would close it up 
And then because it was a rainy day, I would look through the grass and find worms. And what I would do is I would put the Ziploc bag full of rainwater, put it on Barbie's bed and create a water bed. And then I'd take the worms and I'd put them on <laughs> Ziploc bag. And then I, the worms would have a water bed and then I'd just play with the worms. And then I'd put them back in the ground when I was done with them. Can we all just take a moment, a moment of silence, really, to appreciate that visual for just like <laughs> for everyone listening. I want you to imagine the Barbie Malibu dream house. And then we zoom into the bedroom and in the bedroom is a luscious waterbed with a couple mm. of worms just wiggling back and forth on there. <laughs> Those worms were like, what the heck is going well, on? They also were taken from their home and suddenly yeah. they're given this dream home. I mean, that to be fair, that is the reality that I want is someone to pluck me out of my home and be like, we, we made you this waterbed. We made you this dream home. Welcome. Thank you so much, Meg. And finally, before we head out, you were talking about playing alone, about being someone that loved to be in your head. And we know that you're going to be coming to play with us at rec center soon. Yeah. Want to give us a little snippet of what you're going to be teaching in the coming year? Yeah. So this is a way to tie it all together because I'm going to be teaching uh, how to have fun by yourself. So we're going to learn how to be alone with your own thoughts and actually create and cultivate an environment of joy for when you're absolutely alone. So that hopefully you can just let go and become your best friend. And whenever you're with your best friend, you can just do whatever you want. It's the best. Perfect. Thank you so much, Meg. We cannot wait to have you back in the rec center for some playing, for some water beds with worms, for all of the above, dessert trays, you name it. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, are you not buzzing with excitement the way that I am? Every time I listen to this conversation, something new sparks my interest or really gets me excited about experimenting or even starting over. How scary is starting over, but hearing Meg's journey and this idea of the trial and error and the DIY aspect and it all being intrinsically tied to increasing our joy, I mean, that's the planet I want to live on. I want to live on Planet Funhouse with Meg Lewis. Again, Meg will be teaching with us next Saturday, August 20th at 12 o'clock Pacific time. And you can use code FUNHOUSE, all one word, F-U-N-H-O-U-S-E, capital F, capital H, for 15% off. And that's today's episode. Thanks, chickadees. See you again soon. This has been Plays Well with Others, and I'm your host, Alex Brennan Arnapol. Until next time, be present, feel good, and play every day. Today's show has been brought to you with the support of Softer Sounds Studio. Plays Well with Others is a product of Rec Center, the radically inclusive center for creative play.